question before I read this. Are you in the crowd? Matthew 27, 1 through 26. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they, they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's customer, custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of this message, I'm sorry, for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat. His wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas. They answered, What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They answered, Crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. 
but they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. <clears throat> All the people answered, His blood is on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Have you ever tried to help someone only to have them shove it back in your face. Maybe it's difficult to recall a specific instance, but I'm sure that we've all had something like that happen to us. <coughs> Sorry. You try to help someone out, and they snap back at you and say, I don't need any help. Or um, they say, I'm going to go to a friend who will tell me what I want to hear. You get the same thing in business sometimes. You try to help a customer. Maybe you tell them to do the job right. You'll have to get this or, or do that. But they don't want to do any of that. And so they decide to take their business elsewhere only to regret, regret it later. As the saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. That's in fact what we're seeing here with Jesus. He is an innocent man. He is a good man. He is God in the flesh, born to save humanity. But he is rejected, not embraced. As the Apostle John tells us in the first chapter of his Gospel, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. As we've read in Matthew chapter 26, the rejection of Jesus has thus far resulted in Judas delivering Jesus into the hands of the Jewish religious authorities. Jesus' disciples have scattered. Peter denied him three times, even though he said, I'm not going to do that. And the high priest has declared that Jesus deserves death for claiming to be God. It's agreed that he is to be put to death. And as we turn to chapter 27, we are told how this all plays out. Now, the authorities, they had agreed that Jesus was to be put to death, but the question is, how could they possibly go about doing that? What Matthew tells us is that they went to Pilate, the governor. He was the Roman governor of Judea. And it's interesting because... John tells us in his gospel that they went to Pilate, but they refused to go into his palace. He says in John 18, 28, By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Talk about misplaced priorities. They're conspiring to kill a guy, and they're worried about being unclean for entering a Gentile's home, and they want to be able to eat the Passover later. Now, the reason why they're going to Pilate, rather than just killing Jesus themselves, is because they do not have the authority to do so. 
The Roman Empire did not like the idea of people having their own extrajudicial extra uh, executions. They wanted to have a handle on everything. Um, and so the religious leaders make this clear when they go to Pilate. They say, if he were not a criminal, he replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. So it seems that maybe Pilate, you know, he didn't want to get bothered with this whole ordeal. But maybe he didn't suppose that they were going to be trying to kill this guy. That's exactly what they were trying to do. And only Pilate had the authority to make sure that happened. Now when they go to Pilate, they have to kind of adapt their accusation a little bit um, to make the charges stick. Because Pilate doesn't really care if someone claims to be God. He's not concerned with blasphemy. Um, and so we see in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 23, 1, 1 through 2, that they say, that Luke says that the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So you see the strong political shift there. Now, claiming to be Messiah is always going to have political connotations to it. But for them, they were really concerned about the blasphemy. But they had to think about, what was Pilate going to care about? He was going to care about Jesus telling people not to pay taxes and to rebel against Caesar. So that's the charges they drum up. Now, of course, Jesus had never said not to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, we heard earlier in Matthew 22, 21, that Jesus says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. Jesus said, you have to pay your taxes. But they're more than ready to lie to make sure that Jesus is killed. So that's where Jesus is at. But now Matthew zooms in on Judas. What is Judas doing right now? Now, it, it, it's, it's tough to figure out when exactly this happens in the timeline of things. But it's interesting that Matthew inserts this little episode here. Because we can imagine that maybe this took place after they had already handed Jesus over to um, Pilate and everything's kind of rolling along that Jesus is going to be crucified. But So we're looking at Judas, and as he sees that the charges are going to stick against Jesus, he begins to experience remorse. And so he wants to return the 30 pieces of silver that he received for betraying Jesus, because he know, knows that he's innocent. But the thing is, is that the religious leaders won't take it back. The priests won't take it back. They don't care whether Judas's conscience is burdened. Say, what is that to us? It's your responsibility. Now, of course, it's not just Judas's responsibility. They're very responsible in this situation. But they're not going to soothe Judas's conscience. But he does not want that money, and so he throws it. He just throws it into the temple precinct. And then he goes off and he hangs himself out of despair and his remorse. 
There's an interesting parallel here when you go back to the Old Testament. You think about Jesus as this messianic figure, son of David, the one to sit on David's throne. You go back to David and 2 Samuel, and we see that he was likewise betrayed by someone. And this person, his name was Ahithophel. Um, he was David's counselor. He committed suicide as well. Um, 2 Samuel 17.23, it says, When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he was going to try to get David killed. He saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Now, the thing that's different between Judas and Ahithophel is it's not clear that Judas, it's not clear that Ahithophel had any remorse. Whereas Judas does have some remorse. And so that gets us to thinking, like, is there hope for Judas? Well, it's important for us to differentiate between remorse and repentance. Remorse is feeling bad about something. And most everyone in this world has something that they feel bad about. Because God has written His law to a certain extent upon our consciences so that we know basic right and wrong. And a lot of us have, have violated those even just most basic things, not even just talking about the further details that are given in, in the Bible. But it's one thing to experience remorse. But what God desires is not mere remorse, but also repentance, because repentance seeks restoration. It seeks getting back in right standing with God. And this is what we ultimately see with Peter. We can count on the fact that Peter felt remorse when he denied Jesus. But ultimately, he's restored. He doesn't just say, okay, that's it. We have the apostles offering somewhat of an assessment on Judas's fate in the book of Acts. In Acts 1, verses 24 through 25, when they're trying to figure out who they're going to replace Judas with. They wanted someone else um, to fill out the twelve who had also been with them during Jesus' ministry, who had seen him resurrected. So it says there, Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. So, doesn't really seem to offer much hope there for Judas if they're saying this is where he belongs to go. Now, I think it's important here for us to recognize that all of this is particular to the circumstances of Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He had remorse, but he did not repent. This shouldn't be taken as a report of what happens in all cases of suicide. And I think just generally speaking, we can say two things. One, suicide is wrong. Two, God will judge. I don't, you know, I'm not God. I don't know what was going on in that person's mind. I, I don't know anything. <laughs> I'm just a human being. Um, but we can trust in God because he's just, he's loving, he is merciful. But in this case here, we're dealing with, we, we have the specifics. We have Judas and we have kind of the apostolic assessment of, of his fate here. 
and it doesn't look good for him. So that's what Judas did. Meanwhile, the priests are gathering up all the coins. You can imagine them kind of going all around the floor trying to pick up these coins, and now they're like, what are we going to do with this? Can't put it in the treasury because the money is unclean. Again, they're, they're consumed with concern for all these superficial things. We don't want to put dirty money in the, in the collection plate, basically. But never mind the fact that we're killing, <laughs> we're killing a guy. And so they said, okay, we're going to buy a field and we'll turn it into a burial place for foreigners. And in the book of Acts, it indicates that this is the field in which um, Judas hung himself. Um, and it's interesting, Matthew says here that this is to fulfill prophecy that was given in Jeremiah. Now, when you look at the details of where, those, where this prophecy is drawn from, it actually includes both Zechariah and Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is listed because he's the more prominent of the two prophets. Um, you'll be familiar, if you've, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you'll be familiar with the Zechariah passage when it was talking about um, the payment of 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11, 12 through 13 says, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it to, them at the, to the potter at the house of the Lord. Now, this whole piece about the pieces of silver and the potter seemed to bring to Matthew's mind the prophecy that was given in Jeremiah in relation to um, the potter and the purchase of a field. And we have to admit, like, a lot of this isn't really obvious to us when we're looking at these prophecies and how Jesus is fulfilling them. But... The overarching point that Matthew is trying to make is that Jesus fulfills everything that has come before, even to the smallest detail. And so like, these prophecies are a shadow of what has been manifested in Jesus. So if we go to Jeremiah, it's interesting. We have a couple of places um, where he speaks about a potter and a, of a field. So in Jeremiah 19, 1 through 5, I'm not going to read the whole passage here, but the Lord instructs um, Jeremiah to go buy a clay jar from a potter. And the reason why he tells him to do that is because he's going to eventually bust it. Um, but he goes down to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And it's interesting because it's suggested that it's this val valley where um, Judas hung himself that this is the area where this field was purchased. And what God instructs Jeremiah to do is to basically condemn the people for their failure to be faithful to him, to condemn them for going after idols. And then it, very interestingly, we see in verse 4, it says, For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. Now, what Jeremiah was referring to um, as he was given this prophecy was the fact that the people of Israel were engaging in child sacrifice. They'd offer children to their gods on the fires, just burn them up. 
Now, I think this is a connection. There's a connection being made here between the death of the innocent and the death of Jesus. He's perfectly innocent. It's interesting to think about how Jesus stands with all those innocent children who have been unjustly killed. Not only in that time, but throughout the ages. We also see in Jeremiah 32 the mention of the purchase of, of a field. Um, Jeremiah is told that his cousin Hanamel will come to him and say, hey, I want you to buy my field. And back then, if you were of a relation to the person trying to sell something, you had kind of first dibs, kind of a, a right, a duty to try to purchase the field. Um, and we wonder, you know, why is God having Jeremiah purchase this field, and what's the significance behind it? We look here in Matthew, we're like, what is the significance about the purchasing of a field? Well, I'm not 100% certain, I'll admit. But I think it's offering a glimmer of salvific hope, even in these dark circumstances. Because when we go to Jeremiah, that's what the purchase of the field represents. Jeremiah's been prophesying all kinds of condemnation. The Babylonians are going to come in um, bad times are coming, and yet, even while everything seems lost, God's telling Jeremiah, go buy this field. Why? Because there's going to be a future. Specifically looking at Jeremiah 32, 37 through 41, this is what God says the significance of the purchase of this field is. He says, I will surely gather them, talking about his people, from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me, and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them, and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul." So it's interesting here when we come to the situation of Jesus. That God is able to take that which man intended for evil and turn it for good. They sold out Jesus and with that money, they buy a field that points to the new future, the salvation that Jesus is bringing. Now on the whole, Matthew just really loves the prophets, especially the prophet Zechariah. And I have a little chart up here. Um, and it just shows the comparison of how he goes back and forth between Zechariah when it comes to the entry into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. When he talks about, when he talks about how people will mourn. And then also we see most recently in the previous chapter when he says that his disciples are going to be scattered when the shepherd is struck. So again, the overarching point that Matthew's trying to make here is that Jesus is bringing fulfillment to everything. Now Jesus wasn't only rejected by Judas. That's the point that's being made here in all this. Jesus, Jesus wasn't only rejected by Judas. He was, he was rejected by the religious leaders. And as we'll see, by the common folk too, 
But before we come to that point, Matthew tells us of what happened when Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. Now, as I said before, Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. He's serving under Tiberius Caesar. He functions as governor, as judge. Um, we have this little coin. Uh, I have a picture of that um, from the time of his rule. So he's a real guy. We all have verification of this. And that's the thing that's really interesting about the gospel. They provide all these details that match up with the historical record. And as I mentioned, the Jews have adjusted their accusation to kind of paint Jesus as a political revolutionary. So that in verse 11, Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, yet again, Jesus has an interesting response, a thought-provoking response. He says, you have said so. Now, the point of all this, as I mentioned last week, is when the priests were challenging him on this, and he said, you have said so, is because he doesn't want to entirely affirm probably Pilate's notion of what it means to be a king. And he also wants Pilate to get thinking about even what he's saying. What would it mean for Jesus to be king? Now, when we turn to the Gospel of John, John 18, verses 33 through 38, we have a much more extensive account of kind of the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate, and Jesus saying, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not from this world. Um, so he, he kind of gets into the details of explaining how it's not probably how you're imagining it. Um, but Matthew's point here, it, it, his practice has been to kind of condense things, generally, as we've gone through his gospel. And his particular point here is to emphasize that Jesus doesn't really try to make a defense for himself. That doesn't mean that he literally didn't say any, anything else, but the point is, is that he was pretty much silent. He wasn't putting up a fight. Now, I don't know about you, but if people are trying to crucify me, I'd be like, you've got the wrong guy. Uh, this is unjustified. You shouldn't crucify me. But that's not what Jesus is doing. And this is why um, Pilate is just so amazed. He's amazed that Jesus isn't trying to make any defense for himself. He's like, don't you know what they're trying to do to you? Um, but Matthew's highlighting this because, again, it's fulfilling what was prophesied in Isaiah 53.7, that like a lamb going to the slaughter of silence, so is Jesus here. Now, Pilate offers an initial judgment based on his interactions with Jesus here. Um, and we find that recorded in Luke 23 Verse 4, he says, I find no basis for charge against this man. But then the people responded. They insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea, Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And then Luke um, records that Jesus is sent to Herod by Pilate. And then both John and Luke record that basically you kind of have this back and forth where he's sent to Herod. Herod sends him back because he doesn't find him guilty. Pilate examines him a couple of other times. He goes out to the people saying, I think he's innocent. He does this like three times over. Um, the second time, when Pilate speaks to Jesus, he says, do you free, 
in John 19.10, he says, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power to either to free you or to crucify you? Now, that's just getting back to the point of what I was saying, is that Jesus did say some other things, but the overarching point is this, is that Jesus didn't make it a, a defense of himself. Um, now, as all this is going on, Pilate is under immense pressure. Um, Pilate is in a difficult spot because he's made some mistakes in the past. Um, we have a little record of, of some of the mistakes that he may have made. Um, in Luke 13, 1, um, some people come up to Jesus and they say, now, and Luke says, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, the historical record on this is kind of spotty, but basically what it suggested is that there were some Jews that were causing Pilate trouble. He saw an opportunity to kill them when they were in the temple, and while they were killing them, the, their blood got mixed in with the blood of the sacrifices. Not a great, not a great move to keep, um, to keep good with the people. Um, and so at this point, in his reign as, as governor, um, Pilate has become kind of sensitive in trying to keep the people happy, um, to keep them at peace. And so this is why in, in Mark's gospel, it says that ultimately um, Pilate releases Barabbas to them because he wants to satisfy the crowd. Um, we hear in John's gospel um, how he, he becomes afraid when he hears them saying that Jesus must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And then later on in John 19, how the people basically kind of threaten Pilate because they're shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So they're kind of working both sides. Like, we're going to revolt. We're going to make you um, unpopular with Caesar, all these things. And it's a big, Pilate's like, this is a big mess. How do I make this go away? While Pilate does express some interest in Jesus' guilt or innocence, but we see in verses 15 through 26 that, again, his dominant concern is keeping the peace. He's held hostage by the people he's supposed to be governing, and the results of that are, are just absolutely gruesome. Um, when we look to verses 15, 15 we, we hear that Pilate had this custom of releasing a prisoner to the people at the Passover feast. Kind of uh, saying, here's a time where I will show some clemency. Um, and he offers the people a choice. They can choose between Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Messiah. And maybe this is news to some of you because a lot of you may not have known that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. But that just makes the point all the more poignant. Pilate's like, which Jesus do you want? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Messiah? The name Barabbas just means Bard, son of Abbas um, in Aramaic. So it's Jesus, son of Abbas, or Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was a very common name at that time. And so you had to offer that kind of specification. Um, now, 
it's pretty disgusting that Pilate's even presenting them with this option because he, he's already convinced that Jesus is actually innocent. He knows that Barabbas is not innocent. Um, and in verse 19, Matthew says that even his wife, Pilate's wife, has a dream about Jesus basically saying, don't mess with this guy. <laughs> he's innocent. Um, it's interesting because like 30 years later on, we see a different governor who's, um, who's ruling. Uh, and his name was Albinus. And he has a similar situation kind of arise with another guy named Jesus. Again, it was a very um, common name at that time. Uh, and it says later, uh, this is from Josephus' history. Um, he was a Jewish historian. He says, later, Governor Albinus... Um, Jesus ben Ananias, day and night, he went about all the alleys with this cry on his lips. Some of the leading citizens, incensed at these ill-omened words, arrested the fellow and severely chastened him. But he, without a word on his own behalf or for the private ear of those who smote him, only continued his cries as before. Thereupon the magistrates, supposing as was indeed the case that the man was under some supernatural impulse, brought him before the Roman governor. So very similar to what's going on here with Jesus. There, although filleted to the bone with scourges, he neither sued for mercy nor shed a tear, but merely introducing the most mournful of variations into his utterances, responded to each lashing with woe to Jerusalem. When Albinus the governor asked him who and whence he was and why he uttered these cries, he answered him never a word, but unceasingly reiterated his dirge over the city until Albinus pronounced him a maniac and let him go. Different outcome for Jesus than Ananias. And this is what Pilate could have done. He could have just said, okay, I know you think you're a king. You're crazy. <laughs> I'm just going to let you go. But he doesn't do that. The reason why he doesn't do that is because of the pressure that the religious leaders and the crowds are putting on him. The religious leaders want Jesus dead. And so they stir up the crowd to cry, up, cry out for Barabbas. And this is why Peter lays the blame squarely at, at their feet in Acts 3.13 when he's preaching in Jerusalem. It says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. So, this, so the people are, are crying out for Barabbas instead of Jesus. Which makes us ask, okay, well, who is this Barabbas guy? Well, we were able to get some information from the Gospels. Um, in John 18.40, it says that Barabbas had taken, up, taken part in an uprising. Um, in Luke 23, it says that Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city for murder. And then in Acts Three, Peter says in that sermon, it says, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. So the complete picture of whom Barabbas is, is he is basically a revolutionary. Um, is, he was part of kind of the crowd in Israel that was trying to overthrow the Roman government. And it had killed a few guys in his time. Um, and so... This is the option that is 
Pilate is setting before them. Do you want Jesus, the guy, this guy who's looking pretty bedraggled at this point, or do you want your freedom fighter? Um, and they want, they, they want Barabbas, because to them, he's this Robin Hood who, who's really do, doing what they want done. Um, now, Pilate asked them, why? What crime uh, has he done? But they're insistent. They're in an uproar. And so Pilate washes his hands of it. He says, I'm not responsible. Now, of course, that doesn't um, remove his responsibility in the situation. But what it is highlighting is that the people do have a, a really huge responsibility here for what's happened. Because, again, we saw how, in the case of Jesus ben Ananias, that the governor did let him go. So they're kind of the deciding factor here in Jesus getting crucified. And he says, it's going to be your responsibility. And they say, fine. In verse 25, all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. It's like, wow, gee. <laughs> Maybe put it on yourself, but you're even going to put that on your, on your children. Um, now, it's interesting. Jesus prophesied that this was exactly what was going to happen. In Matthew 23, verses 35 through 36, he says, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. So Jesus said, you're going to bear this responsibility, and then the people voluntarily take it upon themselves. It's interesting, though, because we see the religious leaders later on trying to shrug this off. Um, after Jesus has ascended, the disciples are beginning to spread the gospel. Peter and John have been preaching. In Acts 5.28, we hear the Sanhedrin t speaking to Peter and John, saying this, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So when all this is going down, they're happy to be responsible for it. But later on, they're like, oh no, that's not our responsibility. Now it's interesting, when we look at the, the Gospel of John, we hear just the degree to which they commit themselves to crucifying Jesus. They do it by basically groveling to Roman rule, groveling to Caesar. And John 19, 15 says, they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And then they respond, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. They'd rather have Caesar than Jesus. And so, in response, Pilate has Jesus scourged and crucified. And again, none of this is a surprise to Jesus. In Matthew 20, 19, he said that this is what was going to happen, that the religious leaders were going to hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Um, when we think about what Jesus suffered, um, and we think about him getting whipped, um, if you can go back, just one more slide, guys. Um, a lot of us think of a whip, we think of like a bull whip, kind of like the Indiana Jones sort of deal. Um, but that's not the sort of whip that they would have used to scourge um, 
people. They would have used, this is called a flagrum, and it basically has little bits of bone and lead, and they all would look a little bit different, but the point is is that it, would, it, was, it was designed to basically bruise and, and rip a person open. Um, and that's what Jesus suffered. Uh, the crucifixion itself was not an especially unusual form of, of punishment. It was, it was kind of the punishment of choice for Jewish rebels. Um, you'll notice this is not a depiction of Jesus' crucifixion. Um, I think this is actually a depiction in Rome from a slave's revolt, but you can see there's lots of crosses in the, in the distance. Interestingly, around the time when Jesus was born in 4 BC, there was this uh, Roman governor uh, and general named Publius Quintilius Verus who crucified 2,000 Jews, just killed them all. Um, and then later on, in, in, uh, leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, you see lots of people crucified. Um, and basically, what Jesus has, has associated himself with is basically the lot of losers. Um, Barabbas is a winner. He, he escaped from the cross. Jesus is now with the losers who are crushed by the Roman government. The people didn't want the Jesus who would go to a cross, who wouldn't put up a fight. They wanted the other Jesus, Jesus Barabbas, who would knock a few heads together. This Jesus of Nazareth wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear. He said he was God, but he looked like a reject. He expected his followers to leave everything to follow him. But for what gain? Where was this kingdom he promised? And so in their minds, they said, so crucify him. He's no good to us. If someone has to be fed to the Roman machine, let him be the meat for the grinder. You see, the crowd was very practical. They just wanted what they want, wanted. We look at them today and see how wickedly small-minded they are. But there is a warning here for us. They chose the wrong Jesus, but we can choose the wrong Jesus too. Jesus Barabbas isn't the only other Jesus out there. We create all kinds of Jesuses. We can take that Jesus name and color in anything we want. We dip all kinds of things in the name of Jesus to give it that religious shine. So I've made up some other, you had Jesus Barabbas, I've made up some other Jesus names. You have Jesus McMoney, Jesus Pleasure Son, Jesus Comfortable, Jesus Oh My Way. Anything but the real Jesus. This is why we must go to the Bible again and again. Not so that we can cherry-pick verses to support all our assumptions, but so that everything we assume can be tested by fire. We go to the Scripture so that all our sinful barnacles that are covering up the real Jesus get scraped off. We go to the text because we want the real Jesus. We want the Jesus who calls us to grab a cross and follow him. Don't we? Unless our voice has already joined the cry 
of a crowd that spans 2,000 years, screaming, crucify him. Let him have his cross. We want none of it. So do listen carefully. Listen for your voice. Which Jesus have you chosen? Let's pray. Dear Father, Your Word here is a sober reminder to us of the fickleness of our hearts. Of how we desire our own way rather than Your way, Father. Of how we desire the ways and kingdoms of this world rather than your kingdom, Father, and the King, your Son, who came to save us from ourselves. Our prayer, Father, this morning is that we would not be like the crowd seeking other Jesuses who fit what we want, that rather, Father, we would seek the real, genuine Jesus, Your Son, who came and was willing to die on a cross so that we might be saved. Father, we stand in awe of how You could take such treachery, how You could take this betrayal and rejection and yet turn it around for our salvation. So though you could count on us sinning, Father. But what's greater than our sin, Father, is your faithfulness to save us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for your mercy. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.